Welcome to episode 113 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hello, and welcome back to another episode. I've been thinking about some of the worst mistakes we can make as telepractitioners, and I think one of them is thinking that we're never going to have tech issues, whether it's our first session or our, I don't know, we've been doing this for seven, eight years. Uh, I think that's one of the mistakes that we can make. So I think that we should always have a game plan and kind of be prepared and be doing things to present tech issues from coming up. Um, and our good friend of the program, Stacy Kraus, just recently made a post about this on her Instagram. So here are this, uh, four of the things that she suggested. And it was, number one was to hardwire your computer to the internet. Connect your computer directly to the router. Don't use Wi-Fi. And this took me a really long time to do, and I didn't realize how many issues it would solve when I did it. Just the configuration of my original office I was doing telepractice in didn't didn't make it easy to hardwire to the computer. Uh, so I didn't have it for a long time, and we finally figured some things out, got some different equipment, and I was able to hardwire, and there were so many times that I at least knew that the problem wasn't my internet as far as the Wi-Fi. <laughs> Sometimes it still goes out, but just eliminating that issue was um, a big help. Another thing she mentioned was regularly, regularly use your browser settings to clear the cache, which um, makes faster internet speed. So make sure you're updating browsers, clearing out caches, um, just getting rid of some of those things that can kind of slow your computer down. And next one was um, ensuring your microphone input and speaker output is set correctly in whatever platform you're using. And, um, you know, making sure, uh, giving, doing a test before you grab, jump on with someone. Uh, Zoom has that feature. Lots of other things have that feature where you can test and make sure that they're getting sound from the right microphone and that you're hearing the speaker. And then the last one was keep a list of the student, parent, school staff phone numbers to use in case you're not able to help them troubleshoot for, through whatever platform you're using. And the other thing is being able to walk other people through all of these other things that we've talked about clearing their cache on their browser, making sure their mic is hooked up and they're using the right speakers. And um, just thinking about how I'm going to, how am I going to help someone else work through these things so it doesn't interrupt our sex session. And as always, technology is our biggest asset when we're doing these, and it can be our biggest downfall too. So I loved these tips from Stacy to help us not let the technology get in the way. And you are so right, Kim. You know, we've got to make sure our equipment, our technology is working and functioning appropriately. And I I thank you for sharing that. And, and Stacy, you know, she's just continues to produce such great content. I don't know when that woman sleeps. She's doing such a great job, and those are really great suggestions and something that I'll probably need to go do tomorrow uh, when I do some sessions um, 
that I need to just double check my caches, make sure they're cleaned out. On the podcast today, we have a young woman, uh, Christina Bloodworth, who is out in California doing some great work. I saw her at uh, doing a a presentation on the uh, A.G. Bell Symposium, the Alexander Graham Bell uh, Lissell Symposium. She did a great, great presentation on telepractice and working with kids with hearing loss and what she's doing at Rady Hospital down in San Diego. And I was really impressed with what she did. And uh, let's go hear what she has to say. Hi, are you creative? Do you want to give a webinar or teach a course? Maybe you're a writer. Do you want to create a blog? Maybe you have an idea for a podcast. Whatever your passion is, we at 3C Digital Media Network want you to be a content creator so we can bring your ideas to life. So, to get started, visit our website at 3cdigitalmedianetwork.com and sign up to be a content creator. We look forward to seeing your passions come to life on our platform. So, Christina, welcome to the podcast. Can you share more about your background? Hi, sure. And thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. My name is Christina Bloodworth. I'm a speech-language pathologist and certified auditory verbal therapist at Reedy Children's Hospital San Diego. I provide outpatient clinical services in person and via telepractice for children from birth to 21, though the majority of my caseload is birth to five. I specialize with the deaf and hard of hearing population and have a particular interest in bilingualism and provide evaluations in addition to individual and group therapy in English, Spanish, and ASL. Wow, that's impressive. (laughs) (laughs) I'm even more impressed. I was impressed when I saw you present at the A.G. Bell Symposium, and now I'm even more impressed. Um, So let's let's start with you and, and, and... How did you discover speech-language pathology and then hearing loss as as a focus? Because as we all know, there's not many SLPs that focus on listening and spoken language and, and all of that. So I'm always curious about how you found it. Absolutely. So I discovered the field of speech-language pathology as an undergrad. I was actually a student athlete. I played softball in college and originally thought I was going to be secondary ed and mathematics, so a high school math teacher. Hmm. Life had another journey, to Hmm. say the least. Um, So I actually ended up having a traumatic brain injury. And as a result to the TBI, I was having challenges with memory, executive functioning, even some aspects of language. So Hmm. things like word finding, sentence formulation, circumlocution. And as a result of that, I found that using gestures and just some basic signs were really helpful for augmenting my communication. Mm -hmm. So that's really how my journey started as far as learning more with communication disorders and going down um, the journey with the deaf and hard of hearing community as well. Unfortunately, I had to change my major. I just, I couldn't hold on to the information I needed for the higher level mathematics courses. So things like Calc 2, Cosine Tangent, that all oh, went yeah. out the yeah. door, unfortunately. It's all gone out of my brain. Yeah, too, it's, uh, so. happens to all of us. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, life had other plans for me and I was really interested in just learning more about communication disorders. And again, with the sign, just learning more about the deaf and hard of hearing population. 
So mm-hmm. I was thinking maybe I'd be a teacher of the deaf. Um, mm-hmm. I decided to volunteer at the school for the deaf in New Jersey over the winter break at that time. I observed the TOD, so again, the teacher of the deaf, and got a chance mm-hmm. to meet the speech pathologist. And I was like, wow, what you do is really cool. Like, mm. this is my calling. I want to be a speech path. And that really ended up beginning my journey towards the field of speech pathology. So going back that following semester to school, mm-hmm. I switched majors um, and ended up getting a bachelor's degree in communication disorders, elementary education and special education collaborative, and then also ended up getting a degree in Spanish as well before moving forward with my master's. Wow. Very impressive. And where did you go to college? Um, Southern Connecticut State University. Southern Connecticut. Wow. I have a colleague who just moved to Connecticut. Um I think he may be at a different university though. He's chairing the department. I think at University of Connecticut. Do they have oh. a do they have a speech path program at Yes, sir, they do. So I think uh, yeah, I think that's what, where he went. Um so uh, you know, from your own experience, uh, uh you got into this field. Um and so in even the whole idea of working with kids with hearing loss. And so as you got into all of that and and finishing your master's, when did you first hear about like auditory verbal therapy? Did you get exposed to that uh, in in grad school? That's a great question. So I really did not have a lot of supports in school when it came to the DHH population. Mm -hmm. Um, During my clinical rotations, when I was still in clinic, I was able to get uh, an adult with hearing loss. Um, He was from India, if I recall correctly, um, and had hearing aids, but we were just working on functional lip reading and things like that. He didn't even Mm -hmm. have amplification. Um, But then I ended up, I was finishing up at grad school with Southern Connecticut, but my family had relocated to Colorado. So I was very fortunate. My university was willing to work with me while I did my off um, campus rotations. So I was at the school for the deaf. So it was a voice off program, but I also had an opportunity to be in a total communication program and an oral aural, but it wasn't with a true ABT at the time Mm -hmm. um, with those placements. And then I did early intervention as well, as far as my clinical rotation. Afterwards, I did my CF at Children's Hospital Colorado and started to learn Very a little nice. bit more about mm-hmm. the EVT world. We have an a, we had an AV ed at the time, mm-hmm. um, so I was still learning about the AV world, but also still doing a lot of sign support. And it was just amazing experience. And what ended up mm-hmm. happening was I then moved to California. So I've been at Rady Children's for about five and a half years. And mm-hmm. at the beginning of my career here is when I really started learning about auditory verbal therapy. I'll be honest, I was a little skeptical at first. (laughs) Sure. It was something very different, um, but Mm -hmm. I had incredible mentors. So I was studying under Heather Rose, Sir Mm -hmm. EVT, um, and Teresa Minkoff, and they just opened my Mm -hmm. eyes to a whole new world. And I quickly learned about the benefits of you know, teaching the development of audition and spoken language and really getting that family buy-in. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, my goal has really been to be able to provide those best clinical services for bilingual children who are deaf and hard of hearing, whether it's a bilingual approach with spoken language, so like English and Spanish, or mm-hmm. even through bimodal communication. So if a family right. is from deaf culture, or they're interested in sign, being able to best support them in whatever the decision is. What I've really learned through the last five and a half years and in my practice is being able to support the family's decision, supporting, they ultimately are making that decision as far as 
their journey and the communication modalities and goals for their child. That's mm-hmm. not a decision for me to make. But what I can do is really empower the caregivers, give them the education, give them those resources to make an informed decision, and then be mm-hmm. able to support them as they move forward with that journey. Right, right. It's exactly, you know, one thing that Carol Flexer always said, you know, we really need to start where the parents, where, where their desired outcomes are, and and then build a plan around that. Um, I, I wish that all early intervention programs and even state programs and provide those services that would do that. <laughs> but it almost, it almost seems like it's the opposite. It's, it's the like, opposite. Usually. It's like, this is what we have available to you. So these are your goals because this is what we have available to you. <laughs> Instead of it being, what are your goals? Okay. We will provide services to get you to those goals. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's really where I start my communication or my conversations with these families. You know, they come into the office or via telemed. And one of the first questions I have is, what is your goal for your child? When you think about your child a year from now, five years, 20 years from now, what are your goals when it comes to their communication? And then if these are your goals, what are the steps we need to take in order to obtain those goals? And of course, it's dynamic. The goals may change over time, but really just empowering them. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Yep. I was going to ask for our listeners um, to clarify, would you briefly describe like what is the difference between AVT versus like an oral oral approach? Oh, that's a great question. Not to put, it's not a test, but just, just so people have some background, because I feel like that's not something that everybody knows, even as speech language pathologists. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was in the oral oral school placement, we were still allowing for visual cues and lip reading, um, working on some auditory training skills. A lot of it was just, I felt like basic language, just without the sign support. Again, that's just my personal experience there. Whereas the auditory verbal therapy, what I love the most, um, and Todd, I know you've mentioned this in, in previous trainings, is we have those guiding principles. We have 10 guiding principles, and six of those are for parent coaching and guidance. And that's what I really love. Because ultimately, these little guys, I tell my families, you're going to learn awesome things with me but I can't go home with you at night and on the weekends. So my goal is really to empower you, teach you all these tips and tricks so you can be your child's best coach moving forward. Right. One, yes. I'm going to say hundred percent again. Yes, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Uh, That's, and I think that's what um, has always uh, helped me and, and inspired me is that, that auditory verbal practice is defined and, even with our oral programs uh, and TC programs around the country, you go to one and then you go to another and you may see some different things. Absolutely. Um, but if you are an AV practitioner, then it should look pretty much the same. You know, we all have sort of different styles, but in terms of if you're following the principles, then it should look very similar wherever you go with whoever, with whomever you're working with. Uh, and if they're, you know, if they're following the principles. And so that's, that's what always has, has been troubling for me is that some of the other approaches aren't really defined in what they are uh, and, and their techniques and their strategies. 
uh, not as as well known or, or out there. And so, and, and so people's idea of what an audit, auditory oral or oral oral program, and and especially what a TC program is. I mean, some TC programs are more auditory, and some TCs are very visual and very little auditory, but they call yeah. themselves TC. So, it's a uh, you know deafness. This whole area is just always confusing, and it's you know in some ways it's gotten better because we now have more of you know, talented people like you who've gone through the training and are out there doing great work. And and it's almost becoming more of a standard of care, especially with kids with cochlear implants, um, that auditory verbal therapy and cochlear implants just seem to go together, you know, and parents understand that and they start requesting those services. And so thank goodness we're getting more people trained and more out in the, in the world. Um, and services are a little more available than they used to be. Absolutely. A couple other things that come to mind, kind of hearing you speak, Todd, is with auditory verbal therapy, we're really striving for that developmental synchrony, you know, versus Mm -hmm. the oral oral. I feel like, at least again, in my training, my Mm -hmm. experience may be different from somebody else's, but we weren't really following that developmental hierarchy. And then again, going back to the parent coaching and my oral oral, I wasn't working with the families, Mm -hmm. but here in AVT, I'm working with the families. And once I start teaching them the different tips and tricks or whatever the strategy might be, my philosophy is really the parents are guiding the session. If I'm Mm -hmm. doing all the talking, that's a problem. I want the parent and the child really fostering that parent child or caregiver child interaction. And I'm just that bug in the ear helping to support and continue to take them to the next level. Right. Exactly. And there's so many, I know there's probably a lot of people that are listening. They're like, well, what does that have to do with me? Cause I'm not in the deaf world. Um, but I think all of these principles also apply when you're thinking of any early intervention mm-hmm. that, uh, there was almost none of us come out of grad school, knowing how to teach a parent. We're always, you know, kind of the primary, I'm going to do therapy with a person. I'm going to do therapy with a child. I'm not going to coach a parent to do that with their child. And Mm -hmm. I think that's, you know, if someone is looking into auditory verbal therapy, but not knowing if that's where they want to stay, because that's what that kind of was my journey, Mm -hmm. is that I have not worked in auditory verbal therapy solely since I graduated with that emphasis, but I have been in early intervention and all of those, except for the hearing principles, all of the principles of parent interaction still applied. Absolutely. Exactly. Well, how, uh, Christina, how did, how did telepractice pop, uh, pop its head up (laughs) in your, in your world? Uh, Obviously with COVID, but I, I suspect even before COVID, right? Yeah. Yes, sir. So um, I was fortunate. I had the opportunity to learn about telepractice prior to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So again, when I started at Rady Children, so a little bit more than five years ago is when I started with telepractice. Um, And with this, it was primarily for individual therapy for post-cochlear implantation. So our AR kiddos. And it was really because of the difficulties with access to care, the distance. Families were driving two, three, if not more hours. I had some families taking flights, taking wow. flights to come to therapy. Mm-hmm. And obviously that can be really expensive. Sure. It's time consuming. Families are taking time from work. The kids are being pulled out of school. So we decided to start implementing some telepractice services. Um, but 
as many others, my entire caseload <laughs> had transitioned to telepractice as a result of the pandemic. Um, and this included not only the individual therapy services, but also doing evaluations and group therapy. Right, right. So how big, per se, is, is the Rady Cochlear Implant Program and how many clinicians work just with the CI team? That's a great question. As far as speech language pathologists on the cochlear implant team, we have probably close to a dozen. Ah, we have, yeah, we have a, quite a few that specialize with deaf and hard of hearing. Not all of them are AVT, but they are trained. They do get highly trained. Um, we have four levels of competency. So when you're working with that population, you need to be able to demonstrate certain competencies and certain skill sets in order to then move on to the next level. Um, and typically mm -hmm. level four is once you begin the, your first year of ABT. Um, and then we also have a few ABTs that are in fact on staff. And then we have our cochlear implant audiologists. We also have two surgeons. Um, we have a, a social worker in addition to like a family liaison. So, sure. and she's part of California Hands and Voices and she herself mm -hmm. has a child with cochlear implants. So that part is just so amazing because she's able to have that connection with families and really be able to share her experience to let them know you guys mm -hmm. are not on this journey alone. There is a whole community out there to support you. Right, exactly. Well, I, I'm I'm impressed with the you know how you're describing the team. That's that sounds really exciting. Uh, uh, Akron Children's, we're we're like the the little train that could you know <laughs> we we keep chugging along, but we don't have quite as as many uh, SLPs. Like we have eleven less than you do. <laughs> <laughs> It's it's Todd. <laughs> Todd is the team. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and my wonderful grad students, uh, we do have some help. It's it's an interesting how they have set it up structurally within the hospital. It's it's a little different than probably other places. We don't have to go in all that, but we do have another uh, SLP who does some work on a, uh, work with some of the families and children on occasion. But uh, but yeah, mostly. Uh, I provide the SLP world <laughs> to the team, to the program. <laughs> um, so um, with telepractice, um, what do you find is the biggest difference? Uh, what do you like most versus in-person? Telepractice versus in-person working with some of these children and their families? That's a great question. Um, I feel that my clinical skills have really enhanced as a result to, to telepractice and with the pandemic. You know, I had a handful of kiddos before the pandemic, but then as soon as everyone had transitioned, it was literally, you know, the state of California had closed down um, one night. The next day we still reported in and I had met with my leadership leadership team and was like, we need to transition right away to telepractice and we cannot leave one family behind. Mm. Um, and they were totally on board. And immediately that next day, my whole family, uh, all of my families had converted over. Wow. And I think what I love the most about it is again, going back to that parent education. I am that bug in the ear in person. A lot of times, mm. you know, there might be behaviors or something that's playing a part and the family will look at me kind of like help <laughs> rescue I can't mm -hmm. rescue on the screen. I can't jump across the computer, right? But right. I can coach you. Let's try mm -hmm. this. Let's do a guided experiment. Let's see if this is going to work. It may or may not, but mm -hmm. we'll know and do that trial and error. 
The other thing I really love with telepractice is we're using naturalistic naturalistic environment, but also naturalistic activities, whether it's activities of daily living, let's go unload the the dishwasher, let's go to the grocery store, um, using their toys, using their books. So that way it can help families through those routines that they're going to be doing with their little ones every single day. Of course, we have the more interactive features, which is fun and something new and innovative, but really it comes back down to the basics and utilizing the family, what they have and how they're engaging with the fam, um, with their child. And then back to that bug in the ear, really just supporting them. Right. And I think that's so important to have that framework too. I had hoped we were past this point, but just like last week, I still saw questions on Facebook about how do I get a one-year-old to be interested on me in me mm. on the screen in telepractice? Mm. And <laughs> I was a one-year-old with Down makes, syndrome to be me. interested mm. in me on the screen. And uh, to this SLP's credit, I think they knew that that was not the best thing, but they had some lack of parent buy-in that mm. the the parent, they kind of said like, well, the parent just wants, you know, me to interact with the child. And I think you know, sometimes when we've created that medical model of health care or, you know, child development care, um, then I think that we've kind of almost fostered that, that parents think I bring my child to a specialist, they fix my child and they hand Mm -hmm. my child back to me. What have you um, seen any reluctance on the parts of the parent or what do you do to kind of like communicate those expectations with them? That's a great question. So I think at the beginning of the pandemic, families were just thankful that there was somebody else they could interact with besides the people in their household, right? Um, And that was eye-opening for me, too, for some of these families to kind of see the family dynamics and to be able to engage extended family members. Let's, whoever's there, get grandma, get aunt, get siblings, like, let's get the whole team, whole team Johnny involved, and let me teach you how we can then um, teach the others of how we're going to integrate those different strategies, I think fast forward to more recently, some families, they might have a bad taste in their mouth. A lot of, a lot of people, a lot of clinicians, they got thrown into the pan, um, into telepractice as a result of the pandemic. And some may not have had adequate training. And unfortunately, that's just the reality of it. But I try to tell families, let's do it as a trial, just like we would do here in therapy, like in the clinic for group therapy. Let's give it a try. Let's see how it goes. Um, And if it's really not successful, then we can have another conversation and look at other options for service delivery. Um, But I explained to families day one, like my goal is not for your child to sit at the screen and to interact with me. Again, right. I'm going back to I want that I want to foster that parent child interaction. And sometimes, you know, for families that are kind of on edge, I'll turn my camera off and I'll tell mom or dad, go get some earbuds. I'm going to literally be the bug in your ear and I'm mm-hmm. going to walk you step by step. And then I start to kind of fade my skills or fade my cueing. And the parents are like, whoa, did you see what Johnny just did? I'm like, yeah, mom, you did that. That's all you. I wasn't there. You did this on your own. And once they start to see that they got this, they are so proud and their kids are just thriving and they're really moving forward. So I personally have not had a, um, any, as I think back, I have not had any kids that have had to transition back to on site because telepractice was not working. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I think that I don't think I've realized that before of what a good like visual cue that is to parents to turn your camera off to like really have them be 
okay, I do not need to focus on the screen. My child does not need to focus on the screen. That's not the goal of this session is interaction with the person on the screen. It's my interaction with my child. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, I think it'd be using the AirPods or whatever they're they're using um, to to connect and hear you while the while the screen is off. I think that's a great strategy in general, um, and and a, a great way for other clinicians, to, even with other types of children, their other diagnoses that they're serving, to to really force them to work on the parent child interaction. Uh, and then, yeah, just be that bug in the ear. I like that. Yeah. So what what other strategies or go-to materials or websites do you like for either the birth to three, the parent you know, training, parent coaching, or the some older kids? What do you think? Yeah. So again, with birth to three, I try as much as I can to use naturalistic things that they have at home. But I will pull up like green screens or backgrounds for whether it's books and stories, um, music is a big one, whether it's hearing loss or just my EI kids, you know, I want them engaged, I want them imitating those actions and eventually imitating vocalizations and words and phrases. Um, Once I get to the older kiddos, I will start to do more interactive activities, I think we're all very familiar with things like boom cards and teachers pay teachers. Um, mm-hmm. ABC has another great one that I like to use more recently, or I guess at the beginning of the pandemic, I started seeing these things called virtual classrooms or these bitmoji mm-hmm. classrooms. I was like, wow, that's interesting. Right. And so I started learning a little bit more. I was following it on social media and I was like, this is cool. You, like you got your little avatar, your little teacher sitting in the classroom with these different materials that primarily at the schools were using. It's like, mm-hmm. hmm, thinking about it. And during this, I have kiddos, you know, toddlers at the time. Um, two and three-year-olds that were like, you know what, Christina, I don't know anybody else who's deaf and hard of hearing. I don't have any sense of community mm-hmm. and I'm feeling really alone and isolated. Mm-hmm. So I took a moment to kind of think and brainstorm, like, how can I connect these families with one another? Group therapy via mm-hmm. telemedicine. And from there, I started creating my virtual classrooms. So there's a little bit moji of me. <laughs> Plus, I had families create bitmojis of their little ones, which was a great language opportunity. So let's create mm-hmm. little Johnny. Okay, Johnny, what color is your hair? Are you blonde or are you a brunette? So they're creating that. What color shirt? What color pants? Whatever the case might be. Um, and with ASHA, it says that telepractice has to be consistent with in-person services. So what mm-hmm. I did was I took my curriculum for what I do in person and I created that into a virtual platform. So I have like my waiting room, which is kind of like your center. So you have a chance for the kids to come in, to transition, mm-hmm. for families to start engaging with the little ones, using the strategies that we've been talking about, um, scaffolding the vocabulary. Then we head to class. Um, and with, ha- with that, I then go through my virtual um, visual schedule. We mm-hmm. sing hello. Um, right now, all my telemed groups are for deaf and hard of hearing kids. So then we do listening. And with that, I'm doing conditioned responses. So getting them ready for once they go see their audiologist in the booth. Then it's typically we'll do a book. We'll do music, some sort of special activity. We're integrating language. We sing bye-bye. And then a parent debrief. So at the end, you know, whether it's group or individual, I'm always asking families, like, what went well? What didn't go well? What do we need to change to make it even better the next time? And really getting that buy-in from the families. Um, 
and then taking their feedback, whether it's for what went well for their family, or maybe something didn't go well for me. Maybe I didn't mm-hmm. explain something very well, or maybe it's like, Christina, that activity was terrible. Let's mm-hmm. never do that again. Right. I need to know that so that mm-hmm. I can make it um, functional and engaging for those little ones. Well, I recall when you were presenting at the AG Bell Symposium, you, you showed a little clip of a group, <laughs> some group therapy with these little ones. And I was, I was very, very impressed with that. I mean, I think it takes a lot of guts to try to do groups with, with that, with children that young and, but they were doing it. They were following and they were engaged and they were fine. Yeah, they were doing fabulous. And the, I think the most exciting thing for me with that group that you had a chance to see. So again, mm-hmm. at the time, um, they were two and three years old. We've been going throughout the pandemic. These kiddos are getting ready to go to kinder and mm-hmm. um, more than half of them are going to be transitioning into mainstream programs. And some of them aren't even going to qualify for an IEP. And right. that's not based off of what I've done. That's based off of what the families have done. They have mm-hmm. executed. They have followed through on those recommendations and strategies. And now we have something huge to celebrate. Right, right. Yeah, that was just very, very impressive. And so how many groups are, do you typically do in, on, on your caseload? Um, for telemedicine specifically? Yeah. Okay. So um, my youngest group is 18 months. So 18 months to two years, although one of my colleagues is running an infant group for pre-CI kiddos. Um, That group meets either once or twice a month, but it's really just teaching them the foundations of, again, Mm -hmm. that parent-child interaction, basic auditory skills, working on things like listening first, or even if we're not thinking about auditory, like creating a language-rich environment, things like that. And then I have my preschool group. So my two to three-year-olds, I have a three to four-year-old. And then more recently, I have teens. So that's not with the virtual bitmojis, but this was Mm -hmm. more, I have families that are down by the border. I have families that are closer to Arizona, families that are up north in Orange County. They live at least three hours, if not more, away from each other. Mm -hmm. And again, it was during the pandemic where it's like, I I don't know anyone else who's like me. Nobody in my family has hearing loss. Nobody in my family understands the struggles that I'm having in class. Mm -hmm. So for me, I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity and to connect them and to let them know, like, you again, you're not in this journey on your own. There are others like you and let's talk about it. And with that, we're talking about like real world things. So again, it's high school. So we're talking about some of them are Latina. So, oh, we're getting ready for a quinceanera. Like, what is that going to look like? Or we're getting mm-hmm. ready for a driver's license. Let's start talking about job applications and interviews. Let's start looking at mm-hmm. pro- integrate real world functional activities for them. Right. Well, you know, going back to what you just said about isolation, I had a colleague who, who used to say that, yes, we need to give you know, all of these kids you know, with hearing loss, language and and communication and literacy and all those things. He said, but the one thing that really worried him was these kids in the isolation they face you know, when they are in mainstream situations. And and that's always stuck. And he was saying this 10, 15 years ago. And so it's always stuck with me that, yeah, it's even probably more so now because these kids are growing up with implants maybe and or hearing aids and doing well, they've gotten really great services and then going into mainstream and that's where they are, but they may be the only kiddo in, in the, in the school. And that was, 
many years ago when I was working at AG Bell, we had uh, the the LEAP program, uh, leadership opportunity, no, leadership and whatever, <laughs> LEAP and LOFT. One was for college students and the other was from, for high school students, teenagers. And uh, long story short, it was, it was always interesting to me to, when, the, when the high school students, uh, when, when they arrived and were sitting in the room for the first time uh, and people started introducing themselves, it would always be the case every year because they did them in the summers, people, these, these kids would start crying. Many of them would be crying. Boys and girls, everyone was crying. I was crying. Okay, I admit it. Because they're realizing that they've never been in a room before with other kids with hearing loss their age. And so it was the first time they had ever seen that many people, their, you know, basically their age together in one place. And it's just a has it just a profound effect on them. And it was uh, really interesting to see all that and to see them grow and become even more comfortable with who they were uh, as these, you know, middle school, high school students with hearing loss. And uh, so I think I still think it's a big issue that we can't forget about. I mean, there's so many issues where, you know, about stress and toxic stress and bullying and (laughs) all these other things we have to also be concerned about in the public schools. But, uh, but the, isolation is another one that I think we really need to check in on them a little bit and make sure they're not being, you know, bullied or pushed away or that they have a good social network of friends and and they're socially active. Right. I'm, I'm hoping too, that telepractice gives us more of a chance to do that. Like Christina was talking about with those kids that were geographically all over the place that they were able to find someone that knew their experience and, Hopefully we've learned that we can connect without being all together. And I hope that's something that we take out of this, um, out of the pandemic, the, into the post-pandemic, if we ever get there. <laughs> right. Post-pandemic world. <laughs> right. Whatever the new normal will be or is. Yep. <laughs> whatever normal is. <clears throat> Absolutely. Well, and the cool thing with like the teens, they're now connecting outside of our sessions. Yeah. Right. You know, if they're having a bad day, they're going to reach out to their friend and they're going to talk and they're going to take all those skills that we've been practicing and integrate it in their own conversations. Um, and kind of what both of you guys are saying, I'd love to see like future directions. Let's bring the mm-hmm. social worker into those conversations. Let's bring deaf sure. mentors into those conversations. You know, there's only so much of a skill set that us as speech language pathologists have, but there's a bigger need when we're thinking about the mental health, especially in, in today's world. Right. Exactly. There's so much that we could be doing for these kids. Um, if we had, you know, the right uh, structures in place. Uh, so you know, it's a little prohibitive, but it, you know, it's a little frustrating when you try to, even when you try to do extra stuff and, you know, and can't get things going. Uh, we have uh, uh, Carrie Spangler. I don't know if you know Carrie. She's an educational audiologist, and um, she's been doing a, a program here for many years called Hit It. And it's a uh, hearing impaired, uh, blankety, blankety, blank something teens. <laughs> um, so, uh, and so they meet monthly 
uh, and then they were meeting monthly before COVID. And it's uh, all the school districts locally will send their uh, kids with hearing loss to these meetings and they do things, they have field trips and all this stuff. And so she's been doing that for a number of years. And of course, through, during COVID, they all had to do it virtually, you know, so they would get online together and and she would still be able to do some things online. And But they were, you know, the main thing was just getting these kids to interact with other kids with hearing loss and to to send that message that they weren't alone. And that's, and it's so important. Mm-hmm. So, Christina, I think now is the time the time has come for the most important part of our interview. And it is our moment of Zen. Oh, that sounds lovely. Yeah, it is. It's very lovely. So we have <laughs> for our moment of Zen, we have three different lists of questions, list A, list B, and list C. And our guest gets to choose which list she wants. So which list would you like? Let's go with list A. List A. Those overachievers. They want the A. <laughs> so list A. So Christina, what is the most used app on your phone? Ooh. Without a doubt, Pinterest. Pinterest. I, yes. I love organizing. I love traveling. I love cooking. And Pinterest is a great way to organize all of those different ideas and get some great inspiration. I still am unsure how I planned a wedding before Pinterest, but I would like a do-over at some point. <laughs> <laughs> I not, learned. Not with a new husband. I was going to say, same one. husband, right? Sorry, Dustin. <laughs> same uh-huh. husband. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, yeah. It's a lot easier 15 years later <laughs> to plan a wedding. <laughs> Absolutely. I definitely planned my wedding on Pinterest. A friend of mine, a colleague of mine actually, had told me that you could do private boards. So before my oh. husband even proposed, <laughs> I had the majority of it planned out. <laughs> you women Very are so nice. sneaky, I tell you. Type A. Yeah, got to be yep. organized. Yep. <laughs> Goodness gracious! See, men get the rap for being so difficult, but it's really the women. Okay, number two, what was the last TV show or movie you streamed? This weekend, I've actually was streaming something called Loot on Apple TV oh, yeah. with Maya Rudolph. Are you familiar? Yeah, yeah. Okay. She just a new show came out. Yeah. I haven't watched it yet, but I, I saw oh. I like I like her. She's funny. Yeah, she's hilarious. It's actually really inspiring. I won't give away all the details, um, but she had inherited some money and then started a nonprofit. So I oh. just I love the storyline. It's great. Pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, do you have a favorite book? Well, since studying for my AVT. <laughs> <laughs> The last six months or so, I've been, I actually read every single book that was on the suggested reading list. Wow. Yeah, there was a lot of reading. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but one book in particular that really hit home for me was something called the Auditory Verbal Practice Family Centered Early Intervention, which was by Ellen Rhodes and mm-hmm. Jill Duncan. 
Right. And it was fabulous. Like that book seriously changed my clinical practice. And mm-hmm. I think would be applicable to anybody providing services to um, family-based services to children, um, right. not only for auditory verbal therapists or speech language pathologists, but really to any service um, delivery. Um, and really just taught me a lot as far as how to work with, with parents and families um, and the adult learning theory. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's a a wonderful resource and 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 probably one that's not mentioned as as much as some of the others doesn't have as high a profile uh, as some of the other books that are out there yeah that's great um next question is if you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to do what would it be you're queen of the world and everyone has to listen to you you have good questions I would say respect. Um, I'd like to see everyone just treat each other with respect. Treat others the way you would want to be treated. Mm-hmm. Be kind. We don't know everybody's story and everybody's journey. Um, so again, just going back to treating others the way you would want to be treated. Cool. I like it. Next question. Um, who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? Mm. Another really good one. Are they all this hard? Yes. <laughs> I thought this was Zen. This is Zen. It's, it's Zen us. for us. Touche. <laughs> Touche. It's, okay. it's Zen for the listeners, Zen for us. It's not so much our guest. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. No, this is great. I like it. It's making me think. Um, have dinner with Dead or Alive. Betty White. I Betty White. Love That's a recent one. Yeah. Betty White. She My... just has go ahead. My daughter um, just did her, uh, what do they call it? The wax museum, fifth grade wax museum. And that's Mm -hmm. who she picked to be in her wax museum was Betty White. And she wore my mom's uh, 1970s polyester suit (laughs) that my mom still had and had this, like, we did her hair in big curlers. So we love Betty White at our house, too. (laughs) That's great. Um, there's a great documentary on her on one of the streaming show streaming channels. Um, I forget which one. I don't know if it's Netflix or one of them. Um, so look for it. It's uh, it's one that they they did. A, a quick story about her is that back in the 50s, she had her own TV show. It was like a little variety show, um, and she was actually the first woman to sort of host her own show. It was a big deal, wow. um, and she had a band that played uh, on the show. And in the band, she had on the front row an African-American musician who was playing in the band. Um, And the network got complaints from TV stations in the South that they didn't want to see this African-American person, you know, on TV uh, playing with these white people. And, And to please, you know, move him away from the camera or take him off, you know, take him out of the band. And if they didn't, they were going to drop airing the show. They weren't going to air it in the South and all these stations. So the network goes crazy. They're like, what are we going to do? And uh, Betty White basically said, he stays. Yep. <laughs> and wow. she she moved him that so that he's even, he was even more prominent right in the middle. <laughs> right. I love that story. <laughs> That's great. And, and, of course, they didn't drop the show. They kept watching it. You know, but, mm-hmm. you know, I just thought that was... You know, back in a day when it would have been so easy not to do that, she stood up for her guy, you know, and Mm -hmm. told him to go, you know what? 
Um, okay. <laughs> Next uh, question is, what's the scariest thing you've ever done? And you can define scary in any way you want. Scariest thing I've ever done. So I lived in Spain. I lived in Spain for three summers. The first two I had studied abroad. So first summer I got my minor, second summer I got my major, and then the third summer I was in my master's program. And I had traveled alone the third year thinking, eh, I've been to Spain before. I know mm -hmm. my way around. Mm -hmm. Oh, Christina, mm -hmm. should have known better. <laughs> <laughs> So I traveled to Spain by myself um, and end up taking, once I land in Madrid, I take the train three hours to the wrong direction. <laughs> <laughs> I was not quite proficient in Spain because they, their dialect is a little bit different. And right. so it was a journey to try to get back to where, where I was staying, which was in Salamanca, Spain. Um, but that was definitely an eye opening. It was very scary, but it ended up being an amazing experience because when I went out there for my master's, I was doing a special project looking at how international children with hearing loss acquire language. And wow. so at the end of all of the, the mayhem. Mm -hmm. I ended up going to the school for the deaf in Madrid, Salamanca, Spain. I got to go to the school for the deaf in um, Portugal, Czech Republic, mm -hmm. and in France. And although I didn't speak their spoken languages, I was able to communicate through their sign. And right. yes, all of that was very scary, but also very rewarding. Cool. That very sounds cool. like a great trip in, in the end. <laughs> it was a great opportunity. Yes, sir. Wonderful. Um, let's see. Oh, Number one answer for what's the scariest thing is having children. Oh, mm. <laughs> that's what most people <laughs> tell us. <laughs> uh, so next question is, uh, where is the most exotic or, or farthest place you've been? Done a lot of traveling. I think the farthest place I've been, though, has been the Czech Republic. So, you know, uh, mid-Europe, and that was stunning. I mean, the architect and the history is beautiful. I'm a big foodie. I mentioned that earlier. Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. you know, meat and potatoes, that's my jam. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, awesome. and what I really loved about downtown Czech Republic um, was that, or in Prague, specifically Prague, downtown mm -hmm. Prague, um, like the history there. So they have like this little tower and a little guy comes out on a flute on mm -hmm. the hour, every hour, which is really cool. And they have food carts, but they're like old school push wooden carts. Um, so I would say, yeah, that's the furthest and kind of most exotic place I've been. Very cool. I have a quick story with that. I have a new answer for that too, because I just uh -oh. went to Iceland with my family, awesome. <laughs> but we had part where my, my nine-year-old niece decided that she was going to take over the mic on our little tour that we were on. And the, <laughs> the tour guide let her. And the first thing she said was, Iceland is not known for its food. <laughs> oh. <laughs> With the tour guide sitting right there, and he just laughed because before we came on the trip, we read all these things about how they eat things like fermented shark and goat heads and these interesting things were their traditional food. So that's all she kept talking about was how Iceland is not known for its food. But I had better fish and chips in Iceland than I did in London, so oh, it, it, right. it can be known for its food. <laughs> that's funny. That's uh, so that makes sense because uh, you know on the the show the flight attendant with Kelly Kuko, so, mm -hmm. she 
it's, there's scenes where she's in Iceland and oh, she goes to dinner and they bring and they bring out the goat head. <laughs> so I was wondering, you know, and you say that I was wondering, is that like a when I saw the episodes, I was wondering if that's a delicacy there, but yep, it was yep. pretty pretty nasty. <laughs> sorry, wow. sorry, Iceland. <laughs> to our many listeners over in Iceland, we yes. love you. <laughs> we don't judge your eating of goat's heads. Yep. Um, next question is: If you don't choose your, if you didn't choose your current profession, which one, which profession would you like to try? Different profession. I think looking back, I would like to work for the UN. I oh. like the idea of doing right by people and really trying to make this world a better place, fixing those complex problems and really collaborating with people across the globe. Yeah. Awesome. Sounds perfect. Um, what's a pet peeve that you have? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Let me think about that first. <laughs> um pet peeve a couple that come to mind let's see i think zones are you all familiar with the home edit mm-hmm. yes okay <laughs> so during the pandemic that was my jam was the home edit i maxed out my credit cards at the container store love <laughs> organizing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. maybe a little excessive my husband might say because everything is color-coded in our house, <laughs> um, our entire fridge, the condiments, like you go through anything. Um, and so mm, a little pet peeve, you know, my husband might put the yellow spice in the red spice area. Todd, I see you just How can you live head. with a person like that? Jeez. When things get out of rainbow order. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's a system. And then my husband will be like, where is da 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 da? And I'm like, honey, if it's not in its zone, it's locations unknown. I can't help you. <laughs> oh, you would get along with my wife so well. <laughs> But it truly is a system. Even in my clinic here, my toys are organized, color coded. My little guys, my 18 months, they know blue goes with blue. <laughs> right, right. Perfect. But yeah, I, yeah, I'm 30 years into this marriage and, and that's that you've just described my wife and, and her about 15 conversations a week that we have. Why did you put this here? It doesn't go here. <laughs> The Tupperware bowls are or in this cabinet and the lids are all right here. Don't <laughs> confuse it up. No, you know better. So, yeah, so, We'd okay. be good friends, I think. <laughs> I think you guys would hit it off very well. Yep, yep. And the spouses could have a support group. <laughs> right, exactly. right. Exactly. From a distance. I, did, I didn't mean to put the Tupperware in that. I didn't mean to do that. She then, took then it you, as I was, it was a, an affront to her. Then you, then you have to recite the man pledge. Remember the man <laughs> pledge from the Red Green Show? Oh, yes. I'm a man, but I can change if I have to, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, See, this things, is why it's a moment of Zen. You know, yeah, we started this, yeah, at the beginning of this conversation, it was you women who caused all these problems. <laughs> You know, secretly planning things and on, on Pinterest. And here we go, proving again, it's the women who, who set up these men for such torture. Okay. Christina, last question. 
if heaven exists, what do you want to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Oh, I love that. That's a great question. Um, I think I'd want him to say, welcome home. I'm proud of you. I know you try to do your best in the world and help others come in. Some of your loved ones are waiting for you. Some of them are here. The others are gone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I meant more. We're still on earth, but you know, <laughs> go that way too, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> some didn't didn't have a ticket to get in <laughs> their three-hour train ride went in another direction <laughs> well christina it's been great having you on and how can people reach out to you and and learn more about rady hospital and the implant program and everything that you have going on yeah, absolutely. So Rady Children's Hospital, the Cochlear Implant Team, there is information on the internet. So you're welcome to Google that. Um, there's information about all of my colleagues, including myself, with their biographies and services that we provide. Um, as far as getting in touch with me, I am active on social media. So I have Twitter. I also have um, an Instagram. I just actually started a professional one. So Christina Bloodworth, SLP. You can also find me on LinkedIn, Christina Bloodworth, SLP, or you're welcome to send me an email. It's C Bloodworth, all one word. So C Bloodworth at RCHSD.org. Awesome. Well, good luck with everything that you're doing. And hopefully you'll come back at some point and, and give us an update on all these wonderful things. Absolutely. It was truly a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, that was Christina Bloodworth. Thank you, Christina, for joining us and sharing such great information about working with kids with hearing loss, something that I'm really passionate about. And, of course, working with these children and families through telepractice. And good luck with everything that you're doing there at Rady Hospital and the Cochlear Implant Program in San Diego. Very, very impressed with what you are doing. And I'm impressed that you continue to join us on this podcast, our really faithful listeners. If you don't mind, please rate, review, subscribe, follow, or share the podcast. We want to attract more subscribers and more listeners to this podcast. So anything you can do to help us do that, we are always grateful. We will be back again next week with another episode. Until then, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.